0: All right, hey, good morning, church. If you guys could make your way back to your seat. I love the Christmas sweaters. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say uh, they look good or if they look bad because they're ugly Christmas sweaters. So you guys are rocking it. Um, I got this one at Target last night, and it has a little, you guys aren't ready for this. Are you ready? I don't think you're ready for this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I figured this, this might be a little distracting, though, to keep this up here while I'm up here, so I'll keep it down uh, for now. Uh, but hey, if you are new here, uh, welcome. My name is Casey. Uh, I'm the student pastor here, and you have joined us uh, in, our, in the midst of our Advent season, uh, meaning that we take this whole month to remember and to reflect on uh, and anticipate the birth of Jesus And we do this as a church uh, by taking a moment every week of this season uh, to reflect on what the coming of Jesus means for us and for our world. And now we also want to be a church that prioritizes uh, investing in and building up uh, the younger generations to be the leaders of the church and to be the leaders in our world. Uh, Not just like tomorrow or not just in a few years, but today. And so we have been giving uh, the students... Uh, This church an opportunity to lead all of us together uh, in this little meditation and this little lighting of these candles over here. So I'd like to welcome up Addy and Nano to the stage and we will hear from them. Okay, so the third week of Advent is the week of joy. In the story of Jesus' birth, the angels appeared to a group of young shepherds in the fields nearby to announce that a baby had had been born in a manger. The angels described Jesus' birth as good news and the cause of great joy because he came to be our savior. Joy is not an emotion, but rather it is an attitude, a posture, and a mindset. Joy can coexist with sadness, mourning, and grief. Joy is not dependent on our situations and circumstances. Instead, it exists in all situations and circumstances. Because of Jesus, having joy is possible in all things and at all times. Um, John 1, 1 through 13 says, In the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or pain, but a birth that comes from God. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for being a God that, uh, that loves us uh, the way that you do. I uh, Thank you for loving us so much that you would send your son uh, into this world, into this messy world, uh, to open the door and to pave the way uh, for us to come and be restored into a right relationship uh, with you. Uh, I'm grateful for this Advent season and this time that we get to reflect on what that means for us, and I pray that uh, as we unpack your word this morning, that you would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts to receive uh, this message from you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, church, I am excited to be up here uh, today continuing this conversation uh, about consumer culture around the Christmas season. Now, churches tend to talk about this uh, about, like, once a year around this season uh, because consumerism has deeply rooted itself into the Christian holiday, now, that, sounds, that might sound normal, and that might, not e- might even sound harmless, but I'd actually like to describe it as the consumer culture has bled into our Christian identity. And so, the past few weeks, we have been trying to separate the two by looking at our faith in Jesus uh, and asking ourselves, are we really putting uh, our faith in, in who Jesus is, or are we putting our faith in who we want Jesus to be? Because consumer culture says that you can have what you want. You want this weird uh, flavor of potato chips, Uh, you can get some uh, seaweed-flavored potato chips. Or if you want a cheaper or a more affordable version of Dr. Pepper, Brad said, "Get get some Dr. Bob. Whatever it is that you need, we can get it. It's so easy because we can pretty much hand pick whatever it is that we want. But this culture has made its way into our faith. And some of us have fallen into the trap of thinking that we can pick and choose the Jesus that we want to fit our wants and to fit our desires. And so we've been looking at these sort of different versions of Jesus that we tend to resort to, uh, to fit our needs, and we've been pushing back against that uh, with the truth of who Scripture says Jesus really is. And so Brad started us off a few weeks ago, and he helped us understand uh, two um, common misconceptions about Jesus. The first one being that Jesus was a backup plan. That Jesus is something that we can resort to when things go wrong, but that's not who Jesus is. He wasn't a plan B. Jesus was plan A. God knew that we would need a Savior from the beginning, a Savior uh, that isn't just going to help when things go wrong, but a Savior that's going to open the door uh, to a life that is truly better than one that we could live anywhere else. And so the second misconception is that Jesus is just a way to live. When in reality, without Jesus' way, we are not living the life that we were intended to live, and nothing else can get us there except for Jesus and so that has taken us to where we are today. And I am excited to share with you uh, what I think God has been teaching me uh, through this text that we just read. And so as I was reading uh, this text on my own, right away I noticed the discrepancy in Jesus' arrival. Right away I saw that there are two kinds of people. There are those who rejected Jesus and there are those who received Jesus. And if you look closely, the difference between the two, the determining factor that puts people into either category is whether you know who Jesus is. And so on one side, we have the people that rejected Jesus. And if you know the stories about Jesus, there is a good chance that you're probably already thinking about who the text is referring to. The Jewish people. Like, like we probably think of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They are the ones that didn't know Jesus, and they are the ones who rejected Jesus. Now, if you aren't super familiar with the Bible, I'll tell you why some of us might be quick to think that. Now, there are numerous stories throughout the Gospels. The Gospels are the stories of Jesus' life, where Jesus has these run-ins with these religious leaders. Now, these leaders are the experts of Judaism, and they always seem to work against Jesus and his followers. They try to set him up for failure. They try to catch him breaking the rules. They do all of these things to try and undermine uh, Jesus because they thought that Jesus was a phony. But the reality is is that Jesus is the Savior who was prophesied hundreds and thousands of years before his birth. The Jewish people were told by God over and over again, I will send a Savior to you to restore you. He will come to you in a certain way, and he will do these certain things. But see, for the Jewish leaders of Jesus' life... They had in their own mind this this idea of who the Savior of Israel would be, and Jesus didn't match their description, and so they rejected him. Now, it's easy uh, to automatically think that the people in this text that we just read, the, the people that this text is referring to, the people that rejected Jesus are just these religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests. Because we are so used to these religious leaders being the villains of the story, we think that there is an in-group and we think that there is an out-group. And the in-group is Jesus, his disciples, his closest friends, his followers. And on the out-group is the snobby religious leaders. But when we view it that way, what we tend to do is we naturally kind of put ourselves in the in-group. We put ourselves on Jesus' side and we put the Jews on the other side, the bad side. And we point our finger at them and say, they are the bad ones. They got it wrong. But I want to kind of push back against that for a second. See, I don't think that Jesus' run-ins with the religious leaders tell the story of good versus evil. There's the good guys and there's the bad guys. Go get them, Jesus. I, I think that these stories exist to show us a side of ourselves that we are afraid to admit. Now, a quick and easy example of this is if we say that we are on Jesus' team and we point to the Pharisees in these stories and we say that they are the bad ones and we are the righteous ones, church, that is textbook self-righteousness. We are assuming that we are right and they are wrong, and that is exactly what the Pharisees did. They said, we are the ones on God's team, pointed to Jesus and his followers and said, you are wrong. So, you know, maybe, maybe we can relate to the Pharisees more than we actually think. Maybe when we read about them, we shouldn't be quick to point our fingers at them and demonize them. And instead, let's put ourselves in their shoes and let's ask, how am I like this? I mean, that's what this whole series is about. It's about how sometimes we are the ones who have this distorted understanding of who Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, actually is. And in this text, we see that there is a clear difference between those who cling to what they want Jesus to be and those who accept who Jesus actually is. And within that, I hear a call. A call for us to look at our own lives and ask, where did I get this wrong and what can I do differently? So let's go there. Let's let's unpack that difference a little bit more. And to do that, we're going to look at a story of one of the times where these Jews did reject who Jesus was. And so if you have your Bible, I would love for you to join me in John chapter 10. And we're going to start in verse uh, 24. So Jesus, at this time in the story, he is in Jerusalem, the holy city, uh, and he's there for the feast of dedication, and that is Hanukkah. So that's pretty close to the time that we're actually in right now. And, And so this story, it takes place right after Jesus performed a miracle of restoring sight to a blind man. And there were a group of Jews that watched this happen, and they are perplexed. Because they can't figure out if Jesus is some demon up to no good or if he's something else. And then this happens in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. And so the Jews, they picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but it is for, for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. But Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? And if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So here we have a story of these Jews coming to Jesus, and they are essentially asking, who are you? Now, it seems like this might be an honest and a sincere question, like they want to know who Jesus is, but if we look closely, uh, what they're actually doing is they are asking a question while choosing to ignore the answer. Because Jesus says, I have already told you, you want to know who I am, look at what I have done, but you are ignoring the reality. Why are they ignoring the reality? Well, it's because the Jews, they have an expectation of who the Savior was going to be. They thought, my Savior isn't some poor man in rags, but he was going to be a king. Like, he was going to be royalty. He was going to bring about a new age of prosperity. He was going to lead the armies of Israel against the occupation of Rome. This guy? No, this isn't my Savior. And so the Jews, they rejected Jesus. Jesus because they wanted to be the ones who define who the Savior was instead of letting the Savior speak for himself. Now again, let's pause before we we say, yeah, we are Jesus' sheep, and then point fingers at the Jews for getting it wrong. Let's recognize how we have been in their shoes. Church, have you ever tried to dictate who Jesus is? Have you ever said Jesus is a Republican or Jesus is a Democrat or Jesus is for or against refugees or Jesus hates homosexuals or Jesus hates homophobics or outside of politics? Have you ever said Jesus wants the man of the house's word to be the law? Or Jesus wants our kids to not have any free will. Or Jesus wants me to keep that part of my life hidden. Or Jesus wants me to win this argument. Whatever it is, if you stop and look at that, regardless of what your intentions are, what we are doing is we are dictating who Jesus is. But here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus isn't something that we can mold and shape and define ourselves, because that's not who he is. Jesus isn't a savior that's going to affirm all of your desires, affirm all of your expectations. Jesus is a savior that's going to call you out of your sin, challenge you to face your shortcomings, and invite you into a better life. And we might not like that, but we can't change that. We can't determine who Jesus is. And if we try, we will only be disappointed. When we try to tell Jesus to be a certain way, what will often happen is we will eventually be upset with Jesus because he wasn't what we wanted him to be. When we define Jesus as our matchmaker... And we say, Jesus, go get me that special someone, or when we define Jesus as our political weapon, and we say, Jesus, get that candidate in office, or when we define Jesus as our moneymaker and we say, Jesus, get me that promotion, we are essentially confining Jesus to a lump of Play thinking that we can mold and shape Jesus ourselves. But church, this isn't real. The Jesus that we create in our minds, it's not God. It's nothing. It's counterfeit. But, and if we build our lives depending on this, we will only be, only be disappointed because this won't hold up. That would be like taking this Play-Doh and shaping my own little personal Jesus and then giving it my life. Watching it crumble because the Jesus that I created, that Jesus can't handle the weight of my sin. The Jesus that I define doesn't have the power to change my life. I will just be left disappointed and maybe even reject Jesus because he didn't turn out to be what I wanted him to be. Not only will building our lives on this false idea of who Jesus is be a disappointment to us, but it will also be dangerous to other people. These Jews that we read about The Jews that rejected Jesus, they were so focused on the Savior being what they wanted him to be that it led them to killing the real one. So what's that going to do to our families when we create a false Jesus? What kind of toxic relationships uh, are going to be created uh, when we create a Jesus that is always on our side? What's that going to do to the people in our community when they encounter that false Jesus? Are they going to hear about a Jesus that loves them or a Jesus that hates them? Now, some of us in this room have already experienced some of that. Some of us have kept Jesus at an arm's length because of the Jesus that was sold to us. It happened to me. When I was young, it happened to me, and I rejected Jesus for the first 17 years of my life. Now, some of us, some people have been dealing with that kind of pain for longer. Some of us, the wounds cut deeper because the Jesus that people told us about was more like a Jesus that would throw stones at the sinner rather than forgive the sinner. Trying to shape and define Jesus is disappointing to us and it is dangerous to others. I will say that one more time so that we really understand this. Trying to shape and define Jesus is disappointing to us and it's dangerous to others. Now the alternative, who Jesus really is, is a little bit more like this brick. Now no matter how hard I like push and squeeze, this brick isn't going to change. This brick is defined. It has color. It has character. It is what it is, and so too is Jesus. Jesus is defined. Jesus is unchanging. No matter what I do, Jesus isn't going to change. I can sit here all day trying to change this brick, but I will just tire myself out. Instead, I can accept that this brick is what it is. I can accept that Jesus is who he is. And instead of trying to change him and make something else, I can receive him for who he is. What's more is this brick is solid. Bricks can handle hundreds, maybe even thousands of pounds to build houses and skyscrapers. You can build off of this brick, not the play But if I put this play on the ground like here, and I stood on it, it would crumble because this Plato can't handle the weight of my life, but this brick can. And so too can Jesus. Jesus can handle the weight of my life. Jesus can handle the weight of my sin. But also, watch this. Jack, catch. Give him a hand. <laughs> Was that easy? Like if if. If I had missed that catch, and if it hit Jack, would that have hurt? Probably not. Now, Jack, watch this. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to throw a brick. Uh, I might get fired. Uh, but that would be different, right? Like Most likely, that Play-Doh is, n- is never going to hurt. It's never going to challenge you. The brick, though, that's going to be a different story. It's going to challenge you. If I threw this brick at you, it would hurt. It's not soft. It's not going to cater to you to not hurt you. But this brick, that, I messed that up. The Play-Doh is going to be soft. The brick isn't soft. It's not going to cater to you to not hurt you. This brick is a different story. And so too is that with Jesus. Jesus is going to challenge you. Jesus isn't going to give way to keep you from getting uncomfortable. Jesus is going to challenge you, call you out towards a better life, convict you. Make you face the parts of you that you don't want to face. My point is, that Plato Jesus, it isn't going to work. But the real, solid Jesus, that's something that we, as a church, as an individual, that's something that we can depend on. So then, church, we have landed at a fork in the road. We have two options. We can continue trying to create our own idea of who our Savior is or we can surrender to who he actually is. Okay, but if people say different things about Jesus, how do I know who Jesus actually is? Well, let him speak for himself. Jesus essentially says in this text that we just read, you want to know who I am? Look at what I have done. And to all of us, if you want to know the real Jesus, look at what he did and what he said. And lucky for us, we have an entire book that tells us the entire story of who Jesus is, what he said, and what he did. If, if you want to know who Jesus is, read his story. Because getting to know the real Jesus, that makes an actual difference in our lives. John says in the verse that we just read earlier, to all who did receive him, all who choose the path of surrendering to who he actually is, they are given the right to become children of God, who are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that's the difference between building your life based off of your own strength, your own will, and your own desire versus building your life on God's strength, God's will, and God's desire. And let me just tell you the first one, it leads to a fragile and an insecure life. If we live our lives purely based off of our own will and our own desire, our own strength, our agenda will only get us so far. There will come a point where we will be tired. Our confidence will have run out. Our circumstances will have run us dry, and we will hit a wall. What then? Now, you might think that you can get by with that, but let me tell you, there is a difference between surviving and thriving. The alternative, being a child of God, means that the pressure of saving ourselves is no longer on us. The psalmist, David, A man who spent his whole life wrestling with himself, wrestling against opposition, wrestling with faithfulness. He wrote poems and songs all about God and all about what it means to be a human. And in Psalm 18, he paints this this picture of what God in all of his power is willing to do to save us. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing right now because it's kind of long. But I would encourage you to go back and circle up with your family, circle up with your spouse and read this Psalm 18 and, and take a look at what it looks like and what it means to be a child of God. But in this text... David describes God coming down from heaven, bringing with him all of his strength and all of his power to save us because we can't save ourselves. And David says this in verse 17, the Lord rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me. David was a king. David had kingdoms and armies all at his will. David had almost all of the worldly power any one person could muster, and yet he still wasn't strong enough to save himself. But God is. More than God being able to, God is willing to. When we accept this offer to become children of God, the burden of carving out our own path to save ourselves is lifted off of our shoulders. We don't have to fight to leverage our life to be good and fulfilling because when we receive the real Jesus and believe in his name, we have an all-heavenly, we have an all-powerful heavenly father that is willing to move mountains and to split the seas so that we could experience the fullness of his love of his goodness and his peace. And if you want to earn that right, it's simple. Receive Jesus and believe in his name. But here's the thing. You have to know what you are receiving. And you have to know what you are believing in. Not the build a savior that's going to make all of your dreams and all of your desires come true, but the real savior that we have in Jesus, And it takes turning away from our desire to control our lives, others' lives, and Jesus' life. Because when we turn away from this false Plato Jesus that we mold and that we leverage for our own agenda, only then can we experience the fullness of life as a child of God. I mean, and Jesus said it best. In his promise of what life looks like, he says, In John 10, verse 10, he says, I came that you might have life and life abundantly. Church, imagine how different our lives would be if we didn't have to worry about when that special someone was going to come into our lives. Or if we didn't have the stress of finances hanging over our heads all the time. Imagine that kind of life. Because that's the kind of life that God wants for us, to have peace in the midst of our circumstances, because we know that an all-powerful Heavenly Father is writing our story. And as Brad laid out last week, you can't get that anywhere else. You can only get that through Jesus. So then church, what would it look like? For us to turn in this Plato Jesus, the one that we think is going to make all of our dreams and desires come true, but in reality is going to disappoint us. What would it look like for us to turn that in and come to know and believe in the Jesus who offers us an opportunity to become children of God? I'll tell you what this looks like for me and in my life. Almost every day, I come to the, to the office in this building, and I sit down, and I talk to God. And in my prayers, I am surrendering all of my expectations, all of my agendas, everything that I think is good and right, I am surrendering that to God, and I am saying, Lord, show me who you are. Show me what you said. Show me what you want me to do. Imagine what our church would look like if we all surrendered all of our expectations and our agendas and received Jesus for who he has proven himself to be. In all of his challenges, in all of the things about ourselves that make us uncomfortable, and we surrendered that to what he wants for us, for our families, and for our world. Imagine what our community would look like. If that abundant life was found in more than just an old book or found in more than just the spiritual few, but an entire congregation of people who know and receive and believe in who Jesus says he is. And like we read earlier, Jesus says in John 10, if you want to know who I am, look at what I have done. Now, we unpack that a little bit up here every week, but knowing someone is more than just hearing about them through someone else once a week. Like I said, we have this entire book that reveals God's character, God's desires, his challenges, but I'm not going to tell you to go off and figure it out by yourself because honestly, that's no fun. Instead, I want to tell you that we are a church that loves you and a church that cares for you and wants to walk alongside of you as you come to know Jesus. If you feel lost, or if you feel confused, if you feel uncomfortable, if you feel challenged, I would love to meet you down here and talk with you and pray over you. If you want to step into that community that we have here, if you want to join our church and step into the community that is going to help you grow and know Jesus, I would love to meet you down and talk about that. But if you find yourself needing a conversation with Jesus, maybe you have found that you have put your faith and your trust in a Plato Jesus and you want to surrender that, Jesus would love to meet you down here at the cross to hear you, to listen to you, and to love you. Church, my hope is that we wouldn't just leave this place with some more information or just another good feeling, but that we would leave this place ready and willing to put in the work to devote our lives to knowing and following the real and solid and challenging and unchanging Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your goodness that has been revealed through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the goodness that it continues to be revealed through your spirit working through us, working in us, working in our world. Lord, thank you for being good. Lord, thank you for being patient. Patient with us as we wrestle with ourselves, as we wrestle with faithfulness as we wrestle with all of these things, as we try to learn what it means to be a human that believes and walks faithfully. Lord, thank you for wanting to give us that abundant life even though we turn away from you over and over again. Lord, help us to be honest in what version of you we believe in. Lord, teach us Teach us to show others the truth of who you are and what you say, not what we want you to be and to say, but who you really are. Lord, we love you. Pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.